and thank you for listening to True Crime Cam. This week's episode is a true story about two victims, one who is believed and one who isn't. I found this case in the headlines months ago, and I was going to make a short TikTok video about it, but recently I looked into it again, and that's when I realized that there was a lot more to this than I thought. And I also believe that it's a horrifying example of how sometimes the justice system can do more harm than justice. A major source for this episode comes from Douglas Doughty's articles for Syracuse.com, as well as Alice Siebold's memoir, Lucky. Before I get into this, I do want to give a trigger warning because it involves graphic descriptions of a brutal rape and assault. So if that's something that could potentially bother you, please skip this episode. Alright, let's get into it. This story begins in the earliest hours of May 8th, 1981. 18-year-old Alice Siebold is a freshman at Syracuse University. She's walking home through Thorndon Park near the amphitheater, which is very close to campus, and this is where she would be brutally attacked and raped by a stranger. She recalled this horrific event 18 years later in her 1999 memoir titled Lucky. This is what Alice recalls on page one. Quote, in the tunnel where I was raped, a tunnel that was once an underground entry to an amphitheater, a place where actors burst forth from underneath the seats of a crowd, a girl had been murdered and dismembered. I was told this story by the police. In comparison, they said I was lucky, but at the time, I felt that I had more in common with the dead girl than I did with the large, beefy police officers or my stunned freshman year girlfriends. The dead girl and I had been in the same low place. We had lain among the dead leaves and the broken beer bottles. During the rape, my eye caught something among the leaves and glass. A pink hair tie. When I heard about the dead girl, I could imagine her pleading as I had, and wondered when her hair had been pulled loose from her hair tie, if that was something the man who killed her had done, or if, to save herself the pain in the moment, thinking, hoping, no doubt, she would have the luxury to reflect on the ramifications of assisting the assailant later on. She had, on this urging, undone her hair herself. I will never know this, just as I will never know whether the hair tied was hers or whether it, like the leaves, made its way there naturally. I will always think of her when I think of the pink hair tie. I will think of the girl in the last moments of her life." End quote. After reading Alice's reference to a girl being murdered in the same spot she was attacked, I attempted to find out that girl's name. However, I couldn't find any case of a girl being dismembered in the same location. The closest case I could find was the murder of 33-year-old Agnes Frances Penzabine. On April 30th, 1963, her body was discovered next to an iron fence and partially underneath a small evergreen tree. This iron fence surrounded the amphitheater in Thorndon Park, and photos of where her body was found were printed in the local paper. When compared to the photos of the location where Alice was attacked, they're extremely close, if not in the same exact place. Agnes wasn't dismembered, but she was brutally beaten. The Post Standard wrote, When policeman Daniel Bland arrived on the scene, he found Miss Penzabine's body face down, nude from the waist down, except for a pair of muddy ankle socks. She had no coat, and her brown skirt was rumpled around her waist. Her panties were on the ground next to her head. The shoes and purse were missing. Coroner Gilmore said she died from a crushed skull. 
Her head was battered beyond recognition, with all but two teeth missing from her mouth. She had also suffered three broken ribs and had bruises on her arms and chest. One of her fingernails had been broken off, end quote. Agnes's killer, 27-year-old Ernest W. Wells, was arrested shortly after her body was discovered. Her bloody sweater was also apparently found inside his apartment. I wanted to mention Agnes's case because the comparison to her, or possibly some other murdered woman, is what causes police to call Alice lucky, because she survived, and this is where she gets the title to her memoir. In chapter 1, Alice recalls her rape. I'm only going to read the first paragraph. Quote, this is what I remember. My lips were cut. I bit down on them when he grabbed me from behind and covered my mouth. He said these words, I'll kill you if you scream. I remained motionless. Do you understand? If you scream, you're dead. I nodded my head. My arms were pinned to my sides by his right arm, wrapped around me, and my mouth was covered with his left. He released his hand from my mouth. I scream. Quickly, abruptly. The struggle began. End quote. So I'm not going to read any of this word for word because it's incredibly detailed, brutal, and horrifying, even for me. But to summarize, Alice goes on to recall her brutal attack in May of 1981, in which she was held at knife point, beaten, and savagely raped. Her attacker eventually lets her walk away after stealing some money from her purse. She walks back to her dorm room covered in blood with leaves in her hair and arrives around 2 a.m. She tells the security guard there she's been raped, and the police are called. Alice is taken by ambulance to a hospital close by. Nurses there take samples of pubic hairs, blood, semen, vaginal discharge, and skin from under her nails. Within a few hours, Alice was giving a statement to Sergeant Lorenz. She writes, quote, I made a composite from microfilm features. I worked with an officer and was frustrated because none of my rapist's features seemed to be among the 50 or so noses, eyes, and lips. I gave exact descriptions, but when nothing was acceptable to me among the tiny black and white features I could select, the policeman decided on what was best. The composite that went out that night looked little like him." End quote. The last sentence Alice wrote is concerning in more ways than one. One thing I haven't mentioned yet is that Alice's attacker is a black man. So when police gave Alice these limited pieces to put together a collage of her attacker, it's not her fault that it didn't look exactly like him. But even if the composite did, police can use this as a way to racially profile black men, especially when a white woman has been attacked on a college campus in 1981. In episode 27, I talked about the Death Angels cult, aka the Zebra Killings. In the early 70s, a group of four black men were targeting and killing white people in San Francisco. There were 15 confirmed victims, and this caused massive panic in the community. Because of the string of murders, authorities initiated a stop-and-search program. They had a composite sketch of one of the shooters, and over 150 officers carried that sketch. They would then stop virtually any young black man in the street and record all of his personal information before turning it over to detectives. This program was met with widespread criticism from civil rights groups. Alice's rape wasn't met with this type of reaction, but the more we get into this episode, the more it will become apparent that racial profiling was used. Now I'm going to read one official police report filed by Detective George Lorenz. Quote, Type of crime, rape, slash sodomy, slash robbery, date and time, 8th of May, 1981, approximately 0010 hours, which translates to 2.10 a.m., 
Location, Thorndon Park Amphitheater. Suspect, N-M, 16 to 18. Muscular build, 150 pounds. Short afro, dark clothing. N-M stands for Negro Male. I was surprised that the police report used that word to describe a black man, and I couldn't find the exact time in which police stopped using that word, but according to Ferris State University, that word was abandoned widely, even by the U.S. Supreme Court, by the mid-1980s. However, in 2010, the U.S. Census was still using that term to categorize black people. Back to the police report, this is what Detective Lorenz wrote about Alice after she described her rape. Quote, On the 8th of May, 1981, upon arrival for work, found the above victim in DID, looking over mug photos for a possible rape suspect. Victim was unable to ID any suspects from the photos available, and an affidavit pertaining to the incident as described by the victim was taken by this writer. See all other reports and affidavit, same DR for further info. It is in this writer's opinion, after interview of the victim, that this case, as presented by the victim, is not completely factual. End quote. Investigator Lorenz didn't believe Alice's story about her rape, despite clear evidence that she was. A rape kit proved it. She had bruises all over her, and the doctor who took the samples confirmed that she had been raped. Within hours after the attack, Alice's broken glasses were found by the amphitheater, along with a knife that she described her attacker using, and this detective was still skeptical. In Lucky, Alice writes about the difficult process of telling loved ones about her rape and the turbulent grieving process she endures. For the next few chapters, she then goes back in time to describe her upbringing and some other horrific things in her childhood, like a burned-down home her father let her explore where a child had died, and a couple murders that impacted people in her community. Eventually, time circles back, and she talks about choosing to attend Syracuse University, and then questioning whether or not she should go back after summer, because her parents don't want her to miss a year of college, even though she had a very traumatic experience. In Chapter 7, Alice writes, quote, So they let me go back. My mother still refers to it as one of the hardest things she's ever had to do, much harder than any long drive she had to take over many bridges and through countless tunnels. That's not to say I wasn't scared. I was. So were my parents, but we tried to work the odds. I would stay out of the park, and my father would get on the phone and write letters to get me a single in Haven Hall, the only all-girls dorm. I would have a private phone installed in my room. I would ask to be escorted by campus security guards if I had to walk after dark. I would not go to Marshall Street alone after 5 p.m. or to hang out. I would stay out of the student bars. This didn't sound like the freedom college was supposed to promise, but then, I wasn't free. I had learned it, as my mother said I learned everything, the hard way, end quote. Months have passed since Alice was attacked, and by the end of September 1981, she's taking a writing class, where she reads a poem to everyone about wanting to kill her rapist. One week later, on October 5th, while walking near campus, she runs into the man that raped her. Quote, I was walking down the street when I saw, up ahead, a black man talking to a shady-looking white guy. The white guy stood in the alleyway and talked over the top of the fence. He had long brown hair to his shoulders and a few days' growth of beard. He wore a white t-shirt, whose sleeves were rolled up to accentuate the small bellies of his biceps. The black guy I could only see from the back, but I was hyper-aware. I went through my checklist. Right height. Right build. Something in his posture. 
talking to a shady guy, end quote. Alice then crosses the street and goes into a mom-and-pop shop before calming herself down and exiting back onto the street. The two men in the alleyway are now gone, and she notices a police officer exiting his vehicle on her side of the street. She approaches him, and then, quote, As if out of nowhere, I saw my rapist crossing toward me. He walked diagonally across the street from the other side. I did not stop walking or scream. He was smiling as he approached. He recognized me. It was a stroll in the park to him. He had met an acquaintance on the street. I knew him, but I could not make myself speak. I needed all my energy to focus on believing I was not under his control again. Hey girl, he said. Don't I know you from somewhere? He smirked at me, remembering. I did not respond. I looked directly at him. Knew his face had been the face over me in the tunnel. Knew I had kissed those lips. Stared into those eyes. Smelled the crushed berry smell on his skin. I was too afraid to yell out. There was a cop behind me, but I could not scream. He had no fear. It had been nearly six months since we'd seen each other last. Six months since I lay under him in a tunnel on top of a bed of broken glass. He was laughing because he had gotten away with it, because he had raped before me, and because he would rape again. My devastation was pleasure for him. He was walking the streets scot-free. Alice then witnesses this man, who she believes to be her rapist, walk up to the red-headed police officer she was walking towards and start up a conversation. Alice makes her way back to campus where she calls her parents and makes a sketch of her attacker. Police come to her door. She gives them a sketch, and they're all very keen on catching Alice's rapist all of a sudden. One of them drives her and her friend Ken up and down the street that she saw this man walking on before they eventually give up. Around 8 p.m., Alice arrives at the public safety building to look at mugshots. After looking through pages and pages of photos, the officers finally figure out which red-headed police officer Alice saw talking to her attacker. That officer comes to the building and says he was talking to a man named Anthony Broadwater. And lucky, Alice uses a different name, Gregory Madison. Broadwater has a prior record, but they don't have a negative of his mugshot. Detective Lorenz says they'll arrest the man if Alice is willing to testify. She says she is. Nine days later, and five months after the attack, Anthony Broadwater is arrested at 2 p.m. on October 14th. Who is Anthony Broadwater? Anthony Broadwater, known as Tony by his friends, was born in Syracuse, New York, and the fourth of six boys. Around five years old, he and one of his brothers found their mother deceased on the couch. She'd died from pneumonia. Anthony's father worked as a janitor at Syracuse University, but Anthony felt as if it was off-limits to him because of his race. He and some of his siblings had several run-ins with the law. At the age of 12, he and a couple other boys got in trouble for an attempted robbery. Because of their ages, the three of them were sent to a facility in Albany to receive some sort of treatment. At Henninger High, Anthony was a skilled wrestler. Before dropping out at the age of 17, he and two other students were caught stealing $24 from a school locker. There were two conflicting sources on his age when this happened. One source said that he was 18 and the other said he was 17. Anthony and the other students ended up being charged with petty larceny. Broadwater didn't graduate high school and went straight into the military. He served as a Marine for 18 months before receiving a general discharge because of a cyst on his wrist. Anthony said that he joined the military in the first place because, quote, I wanted to see the world and try to better myself. 
Another reason for this discharge was his father's health. His father had been diagnosed with stomach cancer, and Anthony came back to take care of him. He also eventually got a job installing phones for a telecommunications company. He was 20 years old in the fall of 1981, and his life was really just beginning. And this is his account of his side of the story on what happened on October 5th, written in the New York Times. And the he in the story is referencing Anthony Broadwater. It's not a quote from him directly, but it's the New York Times summarizing what they were told. Quote, he and a friend drove over to Marshall Street, a stretch of restaurants and shops that had long served as a gathering place for college students. While his friend was inside a store, Broadwater recognized a police officer from his younger days. This officer and Mr. Broadwater each remember calling out to the other, Don't I know you? The two made small talk, unaware that Miss Seabold had passed Broadwater on the street and was watching their exchange. End quote. This account is very different from Alice's. She stated that Anthony called out, Hey girl, don't I know you? Maybe she misheard his words, but she also misconstrued who they were directed to. Anthony was apparently speaking to the officer, not her. And it would be pretty irrational for her attacker to recognize her like she claimed, then start a conversation with a nearby police officer. And as a young black man growing up in the 80s, Anthony knew that he especially was not above the law, even if he had known that cop prior to committing a rape. And now we're going to circle back to the investigation. After Broadwater's arrest, he bonded out and returned to do a lineup on November 4th with his attorney. Anthony was one of five men who stood in this lineup to be identified by Alice, and all but him were current inmates. These men looked nothing alike, and it's important to have similar-looking people in a lineup to know if a witness can pick the correct suspect out. For instance, if they knew their attacker had red hair, but the lineup only had one person with red hair, of course that's going to be the person picked out. So before Alice Siebold arrived to identify her attacker, Anthony's lawyer made a request to switch out one of the men for someone who looked more similar to his client. So one man was escorted out and replaced with 18-year-old Henry Hudson. A prosecutor was at the lineup and didn't object to this, but also made note that Henry had some facial hair and Anthony Broadwater did not. Alice arrived at the police station and was asked to pick who her attacker was. Anthony was standing in spot number four, and Henry was standing right beside him in spot number five. This is how Alice described the process of picking her attacker out and Lucky. Quote, Out of the corner of my eye, I already knew the challenge came two men down, but I stood in front of three long enough to agree with my earlier assessment. He was too tall, but his build was strong. I stood in front of number four. He was not looking at me. While he looked toward the floor, I saw his shoulder, wide like my rapist, and powerful. The shape of his head and neck, just like my rapist. His build, his nose, his lips. I hugged my arms around my chest. I moved on to number five. His build was right, his height, and he was looking at me, looking right at me, as if he knew I was there, knew who I was. The expression in his eyes told me that if we were alone, if there was no wall between us, he would call me by name, then kill me. His eyes gripped on and controlled, end quote. Alice tells authorities she's ready and walks over to a clipboard with numbers on it. She places an X on number five, Henry Hudson, not the man arrested for her rape, Anthony Broadwater. As Alice is excused to a nearby room, she says, number four and five looked like identical twins. After a detective enters the room with her, she then states, it was four, wasn't it? 
Before we move on, I want to address the issues of what just happened. First of all, the way Alice described Henry Hudson. The way she described him looking through this two-way mirror at her, as if he knew she was there, and that he wanted to kill her. This man who had no idea who she was. He was just a black man staring ahead of him. Henry had no idea why he was in that lineup or what it was for. And I wasn't there, and I can't say that Henry wasn't looking scary intentionally, but it's not hard to see the issues with how she described this 18-year-old black man. Henry also looked nothing like Anthony Broadwater. Just recalling from my memory, their eyebrows were completely different, their facial structure, the shape of their head, the height was slightly different, their eyes were extremely different, and if you want to be the judge of that yourself, you can find a picture of the lineup easily. Patreon members, I'll be posting all the photos related to this episode, so you'll just find it there. Secondly, According to the Innocence Project, mistaken eyewitness identifications contributed to 69% of over 375 wrongful convictions in the U.S. since 1992, and those just account for ones overturned by DNA evidence. That number is significantly higher in cross-racial identification, like this case, a white woman identifying a black man. A 2012 study found the number of wrongful convictions that were eventually exonerated to be 80%, and over two-thirds of the defendants wrongfully convicted were black. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona. Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. So after Alice made her decision, she was immediately informed after the lineup by the prosecutor that she'd picked out the wrong suspect, which is apparently something she was not supposed to be told that quickly. She was also informed that Anthony had agreed to give a pubic hair sample. He did that willingly. He would never have had to do that, especially after she picked out the wrong suspect. What the prosecutor did next is described as misconduct and an ethical breach. Prosecutor Miss Ebelhare told Alice that Broadwater, his attorney, and Hudson had conspired together to trick her and that this was something that they had done before. Alice wrote about that in her book, Lucky, which Ebelhare helped her research, apparently. She quoted the prosecutor telling her, quote, Of course you chose the wrong one. He and his attorney worked to make sure you'd never have a chance. Because Alice failed to pick out the man arrested for her rape, the case should have stopped there, unless additional evidence came out. And that's not my opinion, that is the opinion of a current prosecutor. However, those prosecutors pushed forward and took it to a grand jury. The transcripts of this jury were not released until January of 2022 and it revealed a lot. At one point during the process, Officer Clapper is brought to testify and answer questions the jury members have. Clapper is the red-headed officer Broadwater was talking to on Marshall Street when Alice saw him and believed it was her rapist. One juror in particular was very skeptical about this case and asked the officer about the lineup process. Alice had picked the wrong man out of the lineup. Doesn't that mean she wasn't absolutely sure Broadwater was her attacker? That is not a direct quote, but that is basically what this jury member said. Instead of directly answering that question, Ebelhair told the jury member that the officer couldn't answer it. 
and basically brushed the question off. In the end, this grand jury indicted Anthony Broadwater for rape, sodomy, robbery, and five other counts. By November 16th, the hair collected from Alice's rape and the hair from Anthony Broadwater were compared. Through the use of microscopic analysis, the hairs are found to be a match. However, this process of comparing hairs is most often used to rule suspects out, not find out who the hair came from. To even know that for sure, one would have to have hair with the roots still attached and conduct a DNA analysis, which didn't exist in the 80s. So basically, at this point, the matching of hairs was junk science, and to bring someone to trial based on a hair alone would never happen today, and it shouldn't have happened then. On December 4th, Anthony Broadwater entered a plea of not guilty to the eight-count indictment. His defense lawyer, Steve Packett, requested a non-jury trial, believing that white jurors would discriminate and convict his client without any evidence, but a judge would be fair. Five months later, the trial began on May 17, 1982, and Anthony's fate was in the hands of Judge Gorman. William Mastine ended up being the prosecutor in this case, which he'd been handed just a week prior. Some police officers, including Officer Clapper, testified for the prosecution on day one. On the second and final day of the trial, additional witnesses testified on behalf of the prosecution. On the stand, a forensic chemist for Syracuse police said the hair found on Alice was, quote, consistent as having come from Anthony Broadwater. On cross-examination, he admitted that the hair could have come from someone else. The most damning testimony for Broadwater came from Alice Siebold, who was the last witness to testify for the state. Alice answered the prosecutor's questions and recalled her brutal attack in great detail for Judge Gorman. The state also made it a point that prior to the rape, Alice had been a virgin. They really made it a point to this judge who had daughters of his own that Anthony Broadwater was a disturbing individual that took Alice's virginity by force. Alice also recalled seeing Anthony months later on Marshall Street speaking to Officer Clapper. She was then asked why she picked the wrong man out of a lineup. In Lucky, she writes, quote, I marked the wrong box because I was very scared, and he was looking at me, and I saw the eyes. And the way the lineup is, it is not like it is on television, and you are standing right next to the person, and he looks like he is two feet from you. He looked at me. I picked him. So basically, Alice is stating to this judge that she picked the wrong man because Henry had looked at her and intimidated her, and she was just scared by the entire process. And lucky, Alice recalled knowing that this was the weak link in her case, but quote, I knew the man who raped me sat across from me in the courtroom. It was my word against his. After testifying, the judge granted everyone a five-minute recess and told Alice not to discuss her testimony with anyone. In an adjoining room, she sipped coffee with the bailiff when Judge Gorman entered the room. He asked Alice about what her father did, whether she had any siblings, and where her sister went to school. It was a quick, friendly chat, but completely inappropriate. The judge shouldn't be having a friendly chat with Alice, the victim in this case, and a person who just testified and was not done testifying. It would be as equally inappropriate for the judge to have a conversation slash friendly chat with Anthony Broadwater, who he is literally determining the fate of, making the final judgment about his life. At some point, the court broke for lunch, and when it did, Alice and her family flew back to their home in Philadelphia. The trial continued, and they got the news of the judge's verdict while picking up their luggage. 
After two days, eight hours total of trial, Judge Gorman found Anthony Broadwater guilty on six counts and remanded him to jail without bond until his sentence. Two months later, on July 13th, Broadwater was given the maximum sentence for rape and sodomy, eight to 25 years. If Broadwater had good behavior and complied with the parole board, he could be paroled after eight years. Before he would even start his prison sentence, another rape occurred in Thorndon Park. A 19-year-old white woman was attacked late at night while jogging. The suspect was a thin, muscular, 20-year-old black man with close-cropped hair. He talked to police and almost took a lie detector test but left the station abruptly. The suspect was similar to the description of Alice's attacker, but police didn't see or at least try to make a connection between the attacks, because why would they? They had already put a man behind bars. Anthony made three formal appeals while in prison, all of which were denied. For 16 and a half years, he sat in prison and maintained his innocence. Because of that, a parole board denied his release five times. So essentially, his time in prison was doubled because he had refused to say that he raped Alice Siebold. One of the most horrifying things he experienced, though, was watching a friend get murdered right in front of him. Broadwater was officially released in 1999 at the age of 38. He immediately contacted the Innocence Project and hired a new lawyer to help overturn his conviction. He had been found guilty and served his time, but he wasn't going to stop fighting for his innocence. However, the DNA and other physical evidence from Alice's rape had been destroyed in 1988, so the Innocence Project could not help. The lawyer Anthony paid $1,400 to ghosted him and took his personal case file, which I believe would never be returned. That same lawyer would be disbarred 10 years later. 11 months after his release, Anthony went on a date with his future wife, Elizabeth, who goes by Liz. Because of his record as a sex offender, Broadwater said he could count on two hands the number of people who invited him into his home. He also refused to start a family. Quote, I couldn't do that to them, living with that stigma. Anthony was only able to get jobs no one really wanted, manual labor with horrible pay. He never earned more than 10 grand a year and lived paycheck to paycheck. His home was passed down to him by his father. Anthony was upfront about his conviction and past with his wife, Elizabeth. He was adamant about his innocence, but let her read about everything herself so she could decide. She chose to believe Anthony. Alice Siebold graduated from Syracuse University in 1984. She completed her MFA degree in fiction at the University of California, Irvine, in 1998, the same year Anthony Broadwater would be released. A year later, in 1999, Alice would publish Lucky, a 272-page memoir about her rape. A month later, she sat down to do an interview with the Los Angeles Times. Dennis McClellan writes, quote, Siebold's post-rape life has not been without its rough spots. She fell into using heroin for three years while living in a low-income housing project in Manhattan and underwent several rounds of therapy, end quote. When asked by McClellan if she forgives the man who raped her, Alice responds, quote, It is a really common question, and I'd have to say, of course not. But I also don't think that that has to be something you do in order to move on and live your life. I want him to be happy and I want him connected to his family and community, because then he won't hurt somebody else, and he won't come looking for me. But I don't forgive him for what he did, no. End quote. At this point, Alice was living in Los Angeles and working on her first novel, which you've probably heard of, The Lovely Bones. 
Published in 2002, the story is about a teenage girl who was raped and murdered. She watches from heaven as her family and friends grieve and struggles to come to terms with her own death. A film adaptation was released in 2009 and grossed over $44 million in North America. Overall, worldwide, it made over $93 million. I remember watching this film when it came out and being very disturbed by the story. Five years after The Lovely Bones was published, Siebold released The Almost Moon in 2007. In this fiction novel, the main character murders her agoraphobic mother who suffers from dementia, then tries to cover it up. Because of The Lovely Bones' success in theaters, Alice's memoir Lucky eventually came into the spotlight as well and sold one million copies. Fast forward to January of 2021, and Lucky is on track to be adapted into a film. A man named Timothy Muchante is signed on to be the executive producer. While reading the memoir, Timothy began to doubt Anthony Broadwater's guilt. He'd later recall, quote, It's the modern-day Emmett Till. The white woman said, He's the black man who raped me. And without almost no procedural due process, he was sent to prison. His life was taken from him. Timothy was especially able to take note of these horrible missteps in the judicial process because apparently he was a former attorney. Timothy said that he left the project because of that, but other information has come out that Timothy was possibly kicked out of the project because he wasn't providing proof that he had the money to produce it, and he's also claimed bankruptcy at least one time, but anyways, he ends up leaving the project and hiring two private investigators with his own money. Dan Myers, a 20-year police veteran, was one of them. He told the Washington Post, After a conversation for over an hour with Anthony Broadwater, I knew this guy was innocent. After trying to overturn his case for decades, Anthony had virtually run out of resources. He was a black man with a felony who'd spent over 16 years in prison and a registered violent sex offender. Because of that, he was rejected from so many jobs and opportunities, as well as housing. Within five months of working with investigators and new lawyers, Melissa Swartz and David Hammond, on November 22nd, 2021, Anthony Broadwater had his conviction vacated at the age of 61. Five months is an incredibly short amount of time. The swiftness in which this happened was very much because of District Attorney William Fitzpatrick, who worked to bring the case in front of a judge, and he argued that Broadwater should be fully exonerated. The stay in court was actually filmed, and you'll hear that after Judge Cuffey vacated the conviction, Anthony Broadwater broke into tears and nearly collapsed into his lawyer's arms. I'm not going to, you know, sully these proceedings by saying I'm sorry. That doesn't cut it. This should never have happened. And uh, I will say to Mr. Broadwater that I assure him uh, that it will never happen again, that we will never let junk science into a courtroom in this county. I think as Mr. Fitzpatrick has pointed out, Mr. Broadwater cannot get those 16 years back. But based upon my review of the motions and the representations of counsel, this court grants defendant's motion. <laughs> they take his conviction and the indictment is hereby dismissed. Thank you, Judge. That concludes the proceedings. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Judge. I couldn't help but cry. The relief that a district attorney of that magnitude would, would, would side with me concerning this case is it, it's, it's, it's so profound. I did everything I could do to always show people that, hey, 
I'm never that type of guy. I never could be that type of guy. A lot of doors been slammed in my face for jobs. She wanted children. I wouldn't bring children to the world because of this. And now we're past age, we can't have children. Eight days after this, Alice Siebold posted an apology on Medium.com. She first sent a copy to Broadwater's lawyers so that he could be the first one to read it. Quote, First, I want to say that I am truly sorry to Anthony Broadwater, and I deeply regret what you have been through. I am sorry most of all for the fact that the life you could have led was unjustly robbed from you, and I know that no apology can change what happened to you and never will. Of the many things I wish for you, I hope most of all that you and your family will be granted the time and privacy to heal. Forty years ago, as a traumatized 18-year-old rape victim, I chose to put my faith in the American legal system. My goal in 1982 was justice, not to perpetuate injustice, and certainly not to forever and irreparably alter a young man's life by the very crime that had altered mine. I am grateful that Mr. Broadwater has finally been vindicated, but the fact remains that 40 years ago, he became another young black man brutalized by our flawed legal system. I will forever be sorry for what was done to him. Today, American society is starting to acknowledge and address the systematic issues in our judicial system that too often means that justice for some comes at the expense of others. Unfortunately, this was not a debate or a conversation or even a whisper when I reported my rape in 1981. It has taken me these past eight days to comprehend how this could have happened. I will continue to struggle with the role that I unwittingly played within a system that sent an innocent man to jail. I will also grapple with the fact that my rapist will, in all likelihood, never be known, may have gone on to rape other women, and certainly will never serve the time in prison that Mr. Broadwater did. Throughout my life, I have always tried to act with integrity and to speak from a place of honesty, and so I state here clearly that I will remain sorry for the rest of my life, that while pursuing justice through the legal system, my own misfortune resulted in Mr. Broadwater's unfair conviction, for which he has served not only 16 years behind bars, but in ways that further serve to wound and stigmatize nearly a full life sentence. In a response statement, Broadwater wrote, I'm relieved that she has apologized. It must have taken a lot of courage for her to do that. It's still painful to me because I was wrongfully convicted, but this will help in my process to come to peace with what happened. Alice Siebold's memoir, Lucky, ceased production and was apparently pulled from the shelves. It definitely took a lot to find this online. A documentary about Broadwater's wrongful conviction was soon in the works. The New York Times reported that Timothy Muchante would be leading the project, which they planned to title Unlucky, a direct response to Siebold's memoir. One of the producers, Anthony Garcia, told People magazine, quote, There's two victims. There's this woman who had this tragic thing happen to her, but his life was changed, too, and his whole life has been ruined for the last 40-some-odd years. It's insane. He's just an incredible human being. He's so forgiving and just happy to be exonerated, end quote. Alice Siebold received a lot of hate and criticism online for this wrongful conviction. In my opinion, this hate was towards the wrong place, because like Garcia said, there's two victims in this situation. What happened to Broadwater doesn't take away from what happened to Siebold. A very small fraction of rape cases even make it to court, and this miscarriage of justice falls on the justice system that put an innocent man in prison with no evidence. Anthony Broadwater has accepted Siebold's apology, but even after his exoneration, his life has been difficult. He walks with a cane and is in need of several surgeries after a long football career in prison, as well as a car accident. 
On November 27, 2021, a GoFundMe was created for him. It raised over $168,000 and people are still donating. Broadwater told reporters his dream was to buy a farmhouse on some land and maybe have a camper for traveling the country with his wife, something he was never allowed to do. In February of 2022, Anthony filed a lawsuit against the state of New York seeking $50 million for his unjust imprisonment. A lawsuit against the county district attorney's office and Syracuse police is also in the works for their egregious misconduct. The state has filed papers to push the trial back to 2024, possibly later. Broadwater's health is declining, and if he dies, the state won't have to pay a dime. As of October 2022, Syracuse.com reported that Broadwater was still collecting discarded scrap metal for cash. This hard labor is tough on his body, and his nights usually end with pain pills, muscle relaxers, and hot showers. He told them, quote, I gotta stop. It's not really profitable, and it's a big toll on my body. With the money raised from the GoFundMe, he's paid back taxes, repaired his truck, and replaced some appliances. Some of that money has also been set aside for Elizabeth to get surgeries. Shortly after this interview, Syracuse.com reached out to the state attorney general asking for an update on the lawsuit, and this seemed to get the ball rolling again, because they acknowledged the injustice against Broadwater and said they hoped a settlement would be reached very soon. Four months later, on Valentine's Day of this year, Broadwater and his lawyers proposed a settlement of $5.5 million. His lawyers reported that it's pending final approvals. Once it's approved, Broadwater would likely receive the money within two months. His lawyers would get one-third of that amount, leaving Broadwater with roughly $3.68 million. There hasn't been an update about the case since, but I'm sure the rest of it will be ironed out very soon. And then Anthony will have the freedom and money to spend the rest of his life doing whatever he wants. Thank you all for listening to this episode. This is actually from the Patreon archive, and I made this seven months ago back in March. I expected to have some new updates by the time I posted this on the podcast, but unfortunately I haven't found any. But I do hope that Anthony Broadwater has at least received the money he was promised from the lawsuit and is now living peacefully with his wife now that his name has officially been cleared. That is all for now, and don't forget to tune in next week for another episode. And I hope you all have a good day, evening, or night. Goodbye.